Well, I want to begin today by reading uh, from the first 14 verses of the Gospel according to John, which describes Jesus again, and, and, and this, it's, it's a beautiful, concise summary of who God is and who he has been. And we'll put it on the screen if you want to follow that, uh, follow along. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. So Jesus Christ is described here as God's only Son who has existed from eternity past as the light of man. And you need this light. Okay, you do. And I need this light. We need Jesus. That's what it's saying here. You need this light because it's only by seeing this glorious Jesus and believing this glorious Jesus that we can be born again and become what it says children of God only when we entrust ourselves to this light of Jesus can we be saved from the darkness from the eternal darkness all around us and Jesus wants this for us he wants us to see him he wants us to believe in him and that's why he came into the world that's why he shined brightly in his glory so that all people might believe in him and be rescued from the darkness the darkness of their sin but even though god created the world and he created all the people in it it says that he wasn't recognized by it he wasn't welcomed by his own he was rejected by us Despite being rejected, though, this is incredible. Jesus did not retract his love from humanity, but in the rejection, he laid it down, his own love, even more abundantly than ever before. Jesus embraced this rejection. He was hung upon a cross for us so that our darkness, our sin, would be taken away from us so ultimately we could live in the presence of his glorious light forever. Amen? God loves us. And God loves his glory also because he is righteous. During his last week on earth, Jesus continued to refer to himself as the light of the world. And he was at the Passover festival, 
And he joined hundreds of thousands of other Jews in Jerusalem at the temple to celebrate God's past salvation and his promised future salvation. And Jesus tells the Jewish people that he is the light of the world to which they must be saved. The light. The light. Not a light. He's the light. He's the son of man, he says, He's, which is the savior. He's the savior of the world sent by God the Father to save them from eternal oppression. If only they will believe what he says, if only they will entrust themselves to him, they will be saved. And he's performed miracle after miracle in front of their eyes to prove this, that he is God, that he is who he says he is. And this week, this last week of his life, is Jesus' final plea with the Jews to believe in him before he goes to the cross. And today we're going to see how they respond. If you got your Bible with you, we'll be in John 12, 34 through 50. John 12, 34 to 50. And we'll put it on the screen too if you didn't bring your Bible today. And if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'd love to give you one or tell you where you can get a good Bible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, pray as we open your word now, we don't want to approach this uh, as any other book. This is the word of God breathed out by you. So please use this scripture, God, to teach us, Holy Spirit, to soften our hearts, to change us, to transform us into your image, to celebrate the gospel, the good news, God, of what you have done for us. Um, we thank you that you are the light of the world, that you have come to rescue us out of the darkness. We ask that during this time you would protect us from evil, protect our minds from any satanic forces, protect the kids next door, bless them. We give ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll look at John 12, 34 to 50 today, and I want to start by reading just verse 34. Jesus has, has just told the Jews that his time has now come for him to be lifted up. And what he's talking about is he's going to be lifted up on the cross in glory. And verse 34 says, So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, so a couple things you need to know. They knew what he was talking about. They knew when he said he was going to be lifted up that he was going to go on the cross and die. Secondly, these Jews really knew the Old Testament scriptures. And they're talking here about the Christ, who is the same person. It's synonymous with the Son of Man, the Messiah, who was prophesied about. And the Jews believe this about the Messiah, that when the Christ came to earth, he would stay on the earth, he would rule forever. His, he would have an eternal rule. So in their minds, that meant that the Christ would never die. And that's why they asked Jesus why he's teaching that the Son of Man must be lifted up and die on a cross. It doesn't make sense. They don't understand, though, that Jesus is the Son of Man who is so powerful that he will also be resurrected from the dead. He will defeat death. And so they assume, though, that Jesus can't possibly be the Son of Man if he's going to be lifted up, and so they ask him, well, who is the Son of Man? I remember this. Jesus has, I mean, the past 12 chapters, Jesus has been showing them sign after sign to prove that he is the Christ. And he's used all sorts of analogies and, 
word pictures to illustrate to them who he is. He said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, I'm the light of the world. But still, most of them don't get it. And so Jesus answers them using an analogy he's already used. He returns to this idea that I am the light of the world. And in verse 35 to first part of 36, we read, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While, or walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus tells this crowd that he's only going to be with them a little while longer. And once he leaves them, they're going to be overtaken by the darkness. Okay, the light leaves, the darkness moves in. And they will be lost in the darkness. And so he tells them, believe in the light while it's still with you. Believe in me while I'm still here with you. He says that if they'll believe in him, then they will have the light of Jesus. And also, he says, they will become sons of light. So when we believe Jesus, uh, he adopts us as his sons and daughters. It's an adoptive relationship. He adopts us into his family. And what this means is that we now not only have access to God as the light, but in fact, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enters us and we have the light of Jesus living inside of us. And so that just as Jesus was the light of the world while he was here in the flesh, now the church, his true sons and daughters, are the light of the world on the earth because they have the light of Christ living inside of them and shining through them. And this is what happens. As we shine the light of Jesus' glory, of his gospel, of his love, those in the darkness will be drawn to the light and will believe in Christ because of the gospel, because of this love that we are shining to. And then the light spreads to them and it enters them. And then they too will become beacons of Jesus' gospel and light and love amidst the darkness. The picture I got this morning was of our Christmas Eve service when we do the candlelight uh, lighting at the end of the service and it's pitch black and you see some candles start just a couple and then all of a sudden it multiplies one at a time one at a time and before you know it the whole room is illuminated by the light this is what God has called us as Christians to be what he's made us to be the ones who treasure the light and because of his grace have the light of Christ inside of us to enjoy and to shine to others for their own good We know that Jesus is going to work powerfully through his gospel to powerfully draw all of his children out of the darkness to himself. He said that several times in the gospel of John. Now, what makes this complicated, though, is that in our flesh, we don't respond positively to the light. We don't respond positively to Jesus' power in our lives. We don't want the light. We want the darkness. John 3, 19, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
So because humanity has pursued darkness instead of God, God has punished us rightly by handing us over to this very thing we said we wanted more than God, to the darkness. He handed us over to the darkness. So we have become enslaved as a human race to the darkness of sin. We have become hardwired to love the darkness rather than the light. What that means is that left to ourselves, we're lost. <laughs> we're lost in the darkness. We are prisoners to this darkness, to our sin around us. And the only way we'll ever walk towards this light of the glory of Jesus, the only way that we'll entrust ourselves to it, is if he draws us to him with power. That's why he talks about it. He says it several times. Father must draw you. Now get this. If he were to draw nobody to himself and leave us in this darkness that we said we wanted, he would be totally justified. Because he's righteous. We deserve the darkness. And if he draws anybody to himself, it's entirely a gift of his grace and mercy. And what we read throughout Scripture is that God does indeed draw people out of the darkness to the light. He grants them repentance and faith because he is gracious. And to others, God allows them to stay in the darkness that they've told him they wanted more than him. Now let's see how this plays out in today's passage. This is not, I was joking with Cindy, I said, this isn't a passage that if you do topical preaching isn't going to get preached on very often. This is one that would be easier to skip over, but this is God's word, and we're going to camp out and see how God is glorious through this passage, okay? Uh, let's read the second half of verse 36 through verse 41. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus left the crowd and hid from them. Okay? So again, he think this is a symbolic move. He's the light. They're in the darkness. He said, I'm getting ready to leave. He goes and hides from them. They're in darkness now without the light. Verse 37 reiterates that even though Jesus had done all these signs in front of them, they still did not believe in him. And the prophet Isaiah, whom John is quoting here, prophesied about 700 years before any of this ever took place, it's in Scripture, that the Jewish people as a whole would not turn to Jesus in faith. They would not turn to God. And in the first quote here, John refers to the first verse of Isaiah 53, uh, which, if you know Isaiah 53, is an awesome chapter that describes how Jesus would be our suffering servant, our suffering Savior, who was, what was he? He was despised and rejected by men. That's what Isaiah 53 says. And so we read in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it refers to the power of the Lord. 
We read that throughout the Old Testament. The arm of the Lord is the strength of the Lord. And so Isaiah, 700 years before, and John now, <clears throat> in the first century A.D., are both rhetorically asking, to whom has the Lord most clearly revealed his power? To the Jewish people. To the people from whom Jesus came. And the Jews had, think about this, they'd seen God work among them for millennia, for many millennia, up to this point where God is now standing before them. He's in the human flesh. He's still doing signs and wonders among them. And among these people, who will believe in Jesus? That's what he's saying. Jesus' generation of Jews had the power of the Lord firsthand in front of them, now heard the message of the Lord in the flesh and blood of Christ. Which of them will believe? Very few. John continues to explain this, okay, in verses 39 to 41. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, <clears throat> hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So verse 39 says that this crowd of Jews could not believe. They were incapable of faith in Jesus. And Isaiah explains why that is. Because he, parentheses, God, blinded their eyes. He hardened their heart so that they couldn't see with their eyes or understand with their heart and turn and be totally healed by God. <clears throat> God blinded the spiritual eyes of this crowd of Jews. God hardened their hearts so that they could not believe in Jesus who stood in front of them. They could not be saved by Jesus at this point. Now, let's talk about that verse, okay? Uh, um, actually, let's, let's talk about this, this verse here that John quotes in verse 40 from Isaiah, okay? And then let's talk about why God would do this. Why would he harden the hearts of this crowd as much as our feeble human brains can understand? The verse to which John is referring in verse 40 is Isaiah 6, verse 10. And remember that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah received this awesome vision of the Lord seated on the throne in glory with a robe and all these angels worshiping him. And the Lord asks, who will I send to share my message with the world? And Isaiah answers, here I am, Lord, send me. And so the Lord tells Isaiah to go to the Jews and to tell them about their Savior God for this purpose, in order to make their hearts dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind so that they cannot see God with their spiritual eyes or hear God with their spiritual ears or understand God with their hearts. John 6:41 says that because Isaiah saw the Lord and spoke what the Lord told him to speak, the Jews were hardened to God in Isaiah's day, just like the Jews were hardened to Jesus on this day. Now, God's hardening and softening of human hearts is not a new phenomenon, and it was not a new phenomenon in the first century. In fact, the Bible speaks of God working this way throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. A few examples I thought of. 
In Exodus, we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart over and over again so that Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go until the appointed time. We also read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times. So both were active there. Uh, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses says to the Israelites, in one of his last speeches before the Israelites, he says, <clears throat> think of everything God has done for you. You've seen all of God's signs. Uh, you've seen all of his wonders as he led us out of Egypt. He says this to him, but God has not softened your heart so that you can understand him or give uh, or see him with your eyes or hear him with your ears. In Jonah chapter 4, God softens the hearts of the whole city of Nineveh. <laughs> when jo Jonah, when he preaches to them, and the majority of Ninevites repent, and they beg God for mercy. They turn on the spot and repent. In Acts, we read about people like Lydia. In Acts 16, <clears throat> she was a businesswoman, and the, it says that the Lord opened her heart. He softened her heart to hear this gospel that Paul was preaching to her. There's not a lot of other examples, but it's undeniable in Scripture that God softens hearts, He hardens hearts, according to His sovereign wisdom and will. Now, when we see this, <clears throat> some of us ask, right, is this fair? Is it fair for God to harden hearts? Why would God do this? Why would God harden any human's heart? Well, those are important questions. It's also really complex, and there's been entire books written for m several millennia uh, to try to answer this question. We have limited time here today, and so let me briefly make five points about this issue as it pertains to this passage, okay? We're going to stay in the context, talk about this crowd of Jews at hand. First of all, <clears throat> God wants all people to turn to him and be saved. You get that? God wants all people to turn to him and to be saved. We see this throughout Jesus' ministry, his tireless efforts to perform miracles, to preach and to teach them that people might believe in him and be saved. And many Bible passages testify to God's desire for all people to be saved. Uh, Ezekiel 18, 23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God desires all people to be saved. Second, God doesn't harden the hearts of people who want to believe in him. You hear that? He doesn't harden the hearts of people who want him. Scripture doesn't, now get this, Scripture, a lot of this, you have to go back to what do we believe about sin? What do we believe that sin did to us? What happened at the fall? Well, Scripture does not describe, I, you, if you can find this in, in the Bible, let me know. But what I don't see is this. Scripture doesn't describe humanity as a race of people that is chasing after God passionately and trying to believe Him, but He in return hardens them because He doesn't want them to believe in Him. Rather, Scripture says this about sin, that our sin has so messed us up as a race and as individuals it has corrupted our very will in such a way that in our flesh we don't value God. We don't believe God. We want to be God. We want to be the ones in control. We want to be the ones who are worshipped. God doesn't harden the hearts of people 
who want to believe Jesus. Rather, God hardens the hearts of people whose hearts have already been hardened by sin. Now, this leads us to the third point, which is that God is in control of everything. It means he's sovereign, okay? And at the same time, God allows people to make real choices for which they are responsible. In today's passage, we see both of these. We see the sovereignty of God, and we see human choice at work. Uh, in verse 37, it says that the crowd chooses not to believe in Jesus. Even though he'd done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. They just chose not to believe in him. Now, verse 40 says that God has blinded their eyes to him so that they could not turn to him in faith. You see both. Scripture says this, that God's will is sovereign. It can't be thwarted. And at the same time, Scripture says that each of us choose whether we will believe Jesus or not, and we are responsible for that. We are eternally responsible for what we do with Jesus Christ, whether we believe him or reject him. <clears throat> and it's a mystery how this works. It's a mystery how God's sovereignty on the one hand and how our human responsibility work together. But in my opinion, the Bible clearly teaches that they're compatible, that they go together, they both happen, and it's a bit above our pay grade. And we trust God with this. Fourth, God's hardening of this crowd's heart here in this passage is a judicial hardening. Okay. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had continually rebelled against God. They'd continually chosen not to believe in God. And even at this point in the Jewish nation in the first century, most of their leaders, like the Pharisees, they're described as what? Blind guides. <clears throat> they were blind to God who stood right before them. They didn't accept Jesus when he showed up. They rejected him. The Jewish people's hearts were already hard toward God, and so God solidified the hardness. He solidified the hardness of their hearts by not allowing them to believe in him at this time. This was a judicial hardening. Okay, now, listen up. Fifth, this crowd's, think about, think about this. It didn't hit me till this week, but what was the result of this crowd being hardened? It resulted ultimately in God being glorified and in you and I having a way to be saved. See, this is the same crowd that would shout at Pontius Pilate only a few days later and demand that Jesus be crucified. And it's because their hearts were hard toward God. But it was through their hardness that the ancient scriptures would be fulfilled that said that the Messiah would be oppressed and he would be afflicted and he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. So had the Jews not been hardened toward God in this way, then they would not have rioted in Pontius Pilate's court. Pilate wouldn't have been afraid of them and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus wouldn't have become our sins on the cross and put them to death, and you and I could not be saved. In a mysterious way, this crowd's heart toward God, their hard heart, was an integral part of you and me in this world having the offer of salvation. 
So as much as we have difficulty understanding these things, and we want to use humility whenever we talk about these things, whenever we, we have difficulty in understanding things like predestination and God's hardening of human hearts, this is what uh, we can at least see from this passage we're talking about here, that it resulted in God being lifted up and glorified on the cross, and it resulted in God's church being rescued because of the cross. <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> we should also consider, this isn't God's mysterious wisdom, but we should consider the possibility that God may have later softened some of these Jewish people's hearts so that they would believe in Jesus after his death and resurrection. Okay. We know that God even granted faith to some of the Jewish leaders before Jesus went to the cross, but they didn't tell anybody about their faith. Let's keep reading. We'll read about them. John 12, 42 to 43, it says, Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So God granted faith to many Jewish people, is what it's saying, and even some of the Jewish authorities. But because they were afraid of how other people would treat them, they didn't tell anybody that they truly believed in Jesus. They were scared of some of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees here, that they would be kicked out of the synagogue, which essentially means you're excommunicated out of the Jewish community, which is the worst thing socially that could happen to you as a Jew. And the Apostle John says that the reason that these baby Christians, if we're going to assume that they really were saved here, the reason that these baby Christians didn't tell others about their faith is because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Nobody knew they were Christians because it was more important to them to be accepted by their peers than to be accepted by God. They'd rather be exalted by human beings than to be exalted by God himself. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And you and I are exactly like them in our flesh. We see people, and we see how they can treat us. Meanwhile, our eyes are on the people and not on God, so we don't see God and what he can do to us, and so we fear people instead of God. We would rather not make things awkward when we're with other people, so we never truly talk about anything that really matters. Right? We don't talk to them about things that will impact their eternity because we want them to like us. And so this is, this, this is what happens. We stay quiet. Other people like us. They go to hell. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. It's, this is why it is so hard to do what is right rather than to do what is easy. Okay? Easy is easy for us. This is our, the darkness is what we're used to in the flesh. Be easy. Having, staying in the darkness rather than the light. Righteousness. Right. Doing what is right in God's eyes is hard for us. But righteousness is what God calls us to. And if we believe Paul's words, it says righteousness is actually what Jesus 
freed us to on the cross in order to pursue. But now we're freed to pursue righteousness. Sadly, many of us would rather keep living in brokenness. We'd rather keep living in our broken lives, in our broken systems, in our broken relationships, than to have the courage to do what Scripture says is right and to bring the gospel to bear on all parts of our lives. And again, this is one of the reasons why we need a Savior, why we need Jesus, because Jesus knew that we would often choose to do what's easy instead of right. And so on our behalf, Jesus came, and he always chose to do what was right instead of easy. And then he gave us the credit for that. He gave us the credit for his righteousness when we trusted in his death and resurrection. So because of Jesus, we don't have to abide in our guilt. We don't have to abide and live in <clears throat> this constant contemplation of all the times I've failed in my life to do what's right. Instead, Jesus empowers us to get back up and dust ourselves off and do the right thing next time. Okay? Repent. He gives us the power to do this. It's hard to do what is right when you know that non-Christians and self-proclaimed Christians and Christians will be angry at you for acting according to your convictions. I've never felt this more until I became a lead pastor. It's hard to tell your loved one that they can no longer be part of your life if they are going to continue to live a life of self-destruction and addiction. That's hard. It's hard to tell your friends <clears throat> at school or at your job that you're not comfortable doing a certain activity with them because it goes against your convictions. It's easier to jump in the car and be like everybody else. It's hard to tell your Christian brother or sister that you're concerned about an area of unrepentant sin that you see in their life, and they look at you and say, who are you to judge me? It's hard. It's hard to tell your non-Christian friends and peers about spiritual matters, about the gospel, because you don't want to ruffle their feathers. You don't want to make things awkward. I don't want this barbecue to get awkward. Let's just drink our drinks and eat our hot dogs and leave. Right? <clears throat> we need God to help us have the courage to do what is right rather than to do what is easy. I don't know about you, but I, when I die, I don't want people to remember me as a man who loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is what I say as a church, as brothers and sisters, let's link arms together and seek what is, to do what is right in God's eyes rather than to do what is easy in our eyes. And let's do this with love and compassion for one another. I could say a lot more about this, but for sure, this is what I, 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 I'm learning, that we will be fueled to pursue righteousness. We will be fueled to do what is right rather than eat what is easy when we better and daily understand our new identity in Jesus Christ. When we better understand who he is, who he has made us into now because of how he has justified us on the cross through his death and resurrection.
When we understand that, it fuels us to pursue his righteousness. Now, at this point, Jesus has left this crowd. He's hidden himself from them. And then in verse 44, we read that Jesus cried out more words. Okay, so he's apparently reappeared in some way, uh, and, and he cries out to them because he wants them to hear. He wants them to believe the truth that he's telling them. In verses 44 to 45, it says, and, and Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So what Jesus really wants them to know is this. What he really wants you to know today is this. He is who he says he is. He wants you to know that. He is God. That's why he says that if you believe in Jesus, you're believing in God because God the Father sent Jesus to earth. And Jesus says that whoever sees him sees God the Father. Jesus wants us to know he is God. And specifically, he wants this crowd of Jews to know he is the exact same crowd, or sorry, the exact same God that their ancestors have been following for thousands of years. Okay? He's telling them in the flesh, I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. I'm the one. I'm here. We can't divide God, okay? There is not a God of love in the New Testament and a God of wrath in the Old Testament. The God of the old is the God of the new. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see him completely. Jesus claims exclusivity as the one God of the universe. There's no other God. And at the same time, Jesus claims inclusivity in that he desired to see all people saved. And he will save people from all people groups on the globe. Verses, uh, in verse 36, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So Jesus uses this light analogy again. That's kind of what um, is the bookend of this pericope, of this section that we're looking at. He, he is the light. Jesus came into the world to shine the light into this dark world so that whoever believes in the light will not remain in the darkness. And so this means that whether we stay in the darkness or come to the light hinges on what we believe about Jesus. That's what he says. Whether we stay in the darkness or come to the light hinges on whether we believe Jesus. Do we believe that he is who he says he is? He says this is the, cri- the core criteria of how our eternal destiny is determined. In verses 47 to 48, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Do you hear that? Jesus did not come to judge the world right now in his incarnation. That's not why he came. He came to offer salvation to the world. But he also says there is a day coming when he will pronounce eternal judgment on us and we will be judged by the word that he has spoken. We'll be judged by the gospel. Do we believe the gospel of Jesus or not? 
Have we entrusted ourselves to the truth of the gospel? This is the question by which God will judge all of us and each of us individually. And Jesus continues in verses 49 to 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus says he speaks with the authority of God the Father, and if you're confused here, if you're new here, we believe there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In John, we see God largely talking up to this point about his relationship with God the Father, and then in the next five chapters, we're going to see him talk more about God the Holy Spirit as well. But when we look at today's passage, um, what did God command Jesus to speak according to verse 49? Eternal life. God the Father commanded his son Jesus to share the message of eternal life with you and with me. And then Jesus went to the cross to purchase eternal life for us. So when we look at today's passage, which is confusing at points, we don't want to miss what it says about the character of God. Despite our sinfulness, despite our love of the darkness, God is gracious and compassionate toward us. God cares about you as an individual. God came to earth to tell you about eternal life. God cares about your soul. God cares about where you will spend eternity. He cares also, if he cares about eternity, he cares about time too. He cares about your body right now. He cares about this life that you're living right now in your present body. He died and rose again not only to bless you with eternal life in eternity, but to bless you with eternal life in time right now. God cares about all people. He loves all people. Hear this. Regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their religion. But he especially loves and eternally saves his sons and daughters, who Jesus earlier called sons of light. Do you know today whether or not you are a son of the darkness or a son of the light. Do you know today whether you are a daughter of the darkness or a daughter of the light? If you don't know today, then God's talking to you today. He's talking to you. When he says this, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light because you won't always have the light accessible to you. Believe in the light while you have the light. Believe in Jesus while you have Jesus offering to save you in this window of time today. Because the light of Christ will not be on earth forever. Jesus obviously went to heaven already. He's left the light in his church. And you, will, uh, you and I will not be on earth forever. In fact, we don't know how much longer we will be on this place, on this, on this planet. And know this, from this passage... Your heart may never be as soft as it, is to, as it is today to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus before your heart is hardened even more. Jesus, your God, loves you, tells you for the sake of your own soul to trust him and to believe his words and to believe his love for you and to believe his good news today, his gospel, so that you may become his son or daughter of light 
Come out of the darkness where you're living and live in the light of Jesus Christ. In a minute, we're going to sing a closing song. And if you need to pray to the Lord and get right with him today, then I encourage you to stay seated and talk to the Lord, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time. I'm not a priest. And you don't need me to pray to God for you. You need to go to the man and talk to God for you. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the one we go to. We have access to him because of what he's done for us. So when we confess our sins, when we want to pray to the Lord, we go to him. And you can do that today, and you can do that in your car, and you can do that at Burger King, and you can do that wherever you're at, okay? If you have questions about the Lord today, good, good. You're thinking, awesome. Maybe you've been hurt. I'm sorry. Come talk to me after the service. I'd love to meet with you or I can connect you with the man or woman in the church. And if you're trusting in the Lord for salvation today, if you're telling God, I want you to save me, I need you to save me, Lord then please let somebody else know and please be baptized here at Cedar Home to celebrate how Jesus has saved you from the darkness and brought you into the light. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, you are glorious. You are the light of the world. Thank you for breaking in. Thank you for breaking into humanity to take away our darkness. Thank you for breaking into the darkness, God, in our own lives. For drawing us with your power out of the darkness. Lord, you are mysterious. We humbly confess we don't understand how and why you do everything you do, but we want to be faithful to those things which are clear about what you've called us to do. So please give us hearts of faith that believe in you. We pray for our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers who we think of right now who are in the darkness, whose hearts seem hard, who have potentially been hardened by heartbreak in their lives, who have potentially hardened their hearts, their own hearts towards you, God, like we all have. We just pray that you would soften their hearts for them, Lord. Soften their hearts. Use the message of your love through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to break into them and to call them to you. Draw them to you, Lord. For those of us who are believers, may we not abandon this gospel, but preach it to ourselves every day and treasure it so that we can better remember who we are in Christ and to treasure what you've done for us in your cross and resurrection, that you've completely taken away our darkness, you've unchained us from sin, you've given us your righteousness and declared us not guilty before God forever. Thank you for that, Lord. Please use us as your lights on mission for you, in our community, at our jobs, to our families, to spread your light to this broken and dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.